Okay, Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes is a book about life in a fallen world. Uh, just a reminder of that, I was out yesterday morning, and I, I mean, I, I, I can't remember the last time that I picked up a newspaper. <laughs> they do exist. Y'all do know newspapers exist, right? I was at the coffee shop. They have them there on the stand. Uh, we don't, most people don't get their news via newspaper uh, these days. But uh, I went ahead and bought a uh, weekend edition, and if you want to know about what life is like in a fallen world... Just pick up the AJC, right? Um, So yesterday's version, uh, we had anything from terrorism to rape kits to refugees to cancer, uh, failed health department inspections, contaminated water. I mean, those are just, that's just a sampling (laughs) of some of the the articles uh, that were there. So uh, we don't need a newspaper to tell us that. We experience uh, a lot of these struggles with living life in a fallen world. And Solomon's goals, we've said for a number of months, has been to to teach us as children of God how to live wisely in that world, a world that has been affected by and is still affected by sin and, and the curse of Genesis 3. Uh, almost 15 months ago, we, we took off from the airport uh, on a round-trip tour with the wisest king, the wisest monarch that ever lived, King Solomon. And King Solomon has been for 15 months our, our captain, if you will, or our, our tour guide. And this morning we touched down at the same airstrip that we took off from, the airstrip named Vanity. Solomon began in chapter 1, verse 2, with the statement, Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And like any good preacher, he returned to this theme at the end of his sermon or at the end of his book in chapter 12 and verse 8 with a similar statement. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity. Last week I mentioned that beginning in verse 9 of chapter 12 and down through verse 14, we have sort of an epilogue. Uh, an epilogue to this entire work, this entire book, and in some ways an epilogue to the life and career of Solomon with, with all of his writings as a whole. If you take Song of Solomon together with Proverbs as, as well as Ecclesiastes. Uh, and this epilogue uh, doesn't give us just a few insignificant details. In fact, we said it's actually the crescendo of the book. Uh, it's the crescendo of Ecclesiastes. Now, we've already looked at verses 9 to 12. In chapter 12, uh, where Solomon spoke about himself as a wisdom teacher in in the uh, nation of Israel. He was a man who rigorously researched, uh, who rigorously wrote about life for... And we we didn't point this out when we went through it, but there's a number of times where Ecclesiastes mentions this phrase, the sons of men. And it's really, it's literally translated, the sons of the Adam, and so it's, it's the, the term man there is the term we get Adam or Adam. And so Solomon is always making reference back to that we, he's reminding us, you are the children of the Adam, the man, right? The first man. That's why we're still dealing with these challenges in, in life is because we're, we, we, all of this ties back to those early events in, in the scriptures in the book of Genesis. And so Solomon has researched these things, he's, he's written about these things, 
And, and then he tells us there in those verses we looked at last time about the purpose of his writing and really the purpose, we said, not just of Ecclesiastes, but all of Scripture, and that is to both prod us and to protect us. So Scripture, and especially the book of Ecclesiastes, has this function in our lives as believers that it's, it's sort of stimulating us. It's, it's, it's poking at us, prodding us to, to think about life from a biblical perspective, um, to not be, to not allow our, our minds and our thoughts to be influenced uh, and dominated by the thinking of the world, but to be uh, driven by the truth. And then, of course, there's times because we live in this this fallen world that we get uh, it shakes us up, um, it, it it knocks us off balance. And so, one of the other functions of Ecclesiastes and the Scriptures as a whole is to sturdy us during those times. Uh, Mark Ray, by the way, brother, how you doing? Did your surgery go good? Good, good. Mark caught me after the Bible study uh, lesson last week and just said that he he had always thought about this uh, this twofold function of of Scripture as that sort of rod and staff, right? One one in a, in a sense of protecting and and attacking and warding off the enemies, and then. On the other side, to sort of that teaching and training and preserving and protect and protecting us in that sense, even bringing, like I said, comfort in some cases. So Solomon talked about that, and uh, we'll pick up there. Let me just read these closing remarks uh, for us. This is uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 12, beginning in verse 9. Solomon writes, In addition to being a wise man, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, and he pondered, searched out, and arranged many proverbs. The preacher sought to find delightful words and to write words of truth correctly. The words of wise men are like goads, and masters of these collections are like well-driven nails. They are given by one shepherd. But beyond this, my son, be warned, the writing of many books is endless, and excessive devotion to books is wearying to the body. The conclusion, when all has been heard, is fear God and keep His commandments, because this applies to every person. For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. Now, for 12 chapters, Solomon has been beating this vanity drum uh, from every possible angle. He's been arguing and arguing quite effectively uh, that life is meaningless without God, uh, that there's little joy in life when we try to leave the Creator out of His creation and out of his universe. He says life is in a Genesis 3 sin-cursed world is futile under the sun. Uh, we looked at this term vanity early on in the early weeks of our study, that vanity, this, this term, isn't used just one way in the book of Ecclesiastes. It's actually a word that describes a number of different things, and you can go through the Old Testament and see the different ways that Old Testament writers would use that word. What's interesting about Ecclesiastes is that Solomon basically uses every every form of it. So he takes this term, and sometimes he's talking about the emptiness of life, sometimes he's talking about the frustrations of life, sometimes he's talking about the enigmas of life, the fact that life is mysterious. And so Solomon's been sort of using this this one term, but then as he goes along, the examples that he gives to us and the explanation that he gives to us, he really chases all those nuances. He really says it's this, oh, and it is this other thing, and it is also this. It is futile, it is mysterious, and it is frustrating. It's all of that. 
He says, life is futile because God has removed our ability to be fully satisfied with life. Life is frustrating at times because there is something within all of us that that knows that death and pain and suffering of this life are wrong uh, and that things are not as they should be. I mean, that ought to be one of the things that goes through your mind if you attend a funeral. I know as I'm sitting there, it, if, you, if you go to a funeral service, one of the things that is a believer that just sort of strikes you is this is just not, it's just not right. I mean, this, this is not the way things should be. So he says life is going to be straight, uh, frustrating. There's going to be things that we just experience and say this is not the way it ought to be, and yet we are powerless to change it. Uh, chapter 7, verse 13, he made the statement, what, what God has bent cannot be straightened. And so we can't, these, these effects of the curse on this creation are not things that man can turn around. I mean, we can't reverse these things in our own wisdom and, and strength. So he says, life is futile, it's frustrating, it's also mysterious in that it's incomprehensible. Uh, Solomon has made the point that God for sure has a plan. He has a plan, he's working his plan, but just as sure is the reality that God doesn't reveal to us all the details of that plan. So we have the big picture. I mean, we have statements in Scripture that tell us the, 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 the way that this is playing out in, in a general way. And, and we do have some specific details about what's coming, but the timing of those things and, and the majority of the details we, we don't have. And that's even especially true when we just get down to the, to the brass tacks of your daily living. And so you have a plan. You have a plan, I'm sure, already for this week. You probably have a day timer or a calendar and you've got things written in, appointments and things that need to get done, but you have no certainty at all that any of those things will happen, right? So the Lord knows, but He just doesn't tell us. He doesn't tell us all the details. Uh, And as we mentioned last week, I'm not sure that we want them, right? We would probably scare us to death if we had all the details of what we had to face or would face this coming week. Now Solomon himself went on a search for, for, for his own fulfillment and for answers under the sun. But what Solomon discovered was that no amount of pleasure-seeking, no amount of kingdom-building, no amount of intellectual pursuits could get him the lasting satisfaction that he was looking for. He mentioned this back in chapter 2, verse 9. He said, "...then I became great and increased more than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. My wisdom also stood by me. All that my eyes desired, I did not refuse them." I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure, for my heart was pleased because of all my labor, and this was my reward for all my labor. Thus I considered all my activities which my hands had done and the labor which I had exerted, and behold, all was vanity and striving after wind, and there was no profit under the sun. Interestingly, the more stunning stunning the successes in Solomon's life, the greater the frustration. Because he was, again, he was looking for this satisfaction in all of these pursuits. Pursuits to the point where he says, if my eyes looked at it, I went after it. Uh, if I wanted to buy it, I bought it. Uh, because he had the means. He had the influence. He had the, the power. He had the position uh, as a king. And not just any king, but the most influential king on planet Earth at that time. So he had this ability to say, I want that or I want to go experience that, or I want to go chase that. And he says, listen, I didn't, I didn't hold back on any of those things. And yet the frustration level grew. The further he went down that road, the more frustrated he became. 
Uh, that same chapter in verse 15, he says, Then I said, this is chapter 215, Then I said to myself, As is the fate of the fool, it will also befall me. Why then have I been extremely wise? So I said to myself, This too is vanity, for there is no lasting remembrance of the wise man as with the fool, inasmuch as in the coming days all will be forgotten, and how the wise man and the fool alike die. So I hated life, for the work which had been done under the sun was grievous to me, because everything is futility and striving after wind. So Solomon's search for meaning and purpose uh, was a failure as he sought to find meaning in all of those, those worldly pursuits. But thankfully, in the end, Solomon realized that his search had been fruitless because he was looking in the wrong place. Chapter 2, the very end there, verse 25, for who, he says, who can eat and who can have enjoyment without God? You can't do it. Even if you could buy the thing, you could acquire the thing that you've been chasing, he just says, then once you get it in your possession, you can't even enjoy it. Because God is the one that gives not only the gifts, but he gives the ability to enjoy it. So... All these people out there, this is why, folks, that in our culture, we are one of the, quote, most depressed countries in the world, even though we are the, one of the most materialistic countries in the world, right? So we've got more people battling, a greater percentage, I think, of our culture, culture battling issues of anxiety, fear, depression, and anger, and, and, and those types of emotions than most cultures on planet Earth, and yet we have the most money and have the most ability to go out and to get the things that we want. So this was part of the curse. Sin's advent into the creation changed both the nature of the world and the way that we relate to it. Ever since that time, the world has been striving to manfully find fulfillment here and now. You can read that on page, page 8 and 9, right? Right, the big double, the, the, the center page of this first of section A, right? Rooms to go. There is, <laughs> they got the full the full ad right. So this this is what this is what the world does right. It it comes to us. Uh, people been stri- striving to 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 gain this fulfillment here and now. The material things of life have been have been sold as giving meaning or fulfillment. We see it every day, and whether it's a paper or whether it's a pop up ad on your phone or whether it's a television, we see these things calling out to us. And even when it wants to pose as non-materialistic, the world has been holding forth these intangible goals of, of contentment, achievement, worth, significance, all those things as, as means of ultimate fulfillment. Living for a paycheck, a raise, a promotion, living for great sex, great health, great popularity, or great power, but none of these things will give us soul-quenching meaning or fulfillment. And the entire book of Ecclesiastes has been a masterpiece expanding on that reality. That meaning and fulfillment cannot be located within the under-the-sun reality, or you want to say the, on the horizontal plane. You're never going to find meaning and lasting fulfillment on that horizontal plane within creation and apart from the Creator. You're just not going to find it. So this, this world was never created to be ultimate right? The creator is ultimate. He is the one who is ultimate. So when Adam and Eve sinned, 
part of the curse was that God extracted from the human race the ability to be satisfied. And then God set man on a course or on a trajectory, this endless search for contentment and the meaning of life. And so people went searching. And Solomon is just one example of that. But he, in some ways, is that ultimate example because some people want to search and get things, but they have, that, they have the want to, but they don't have the ability. The, 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 the unique thing about Solomon is that he had the desire for those things, but had the ability to get those things. And so he can say this with authority, right? He, 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 he was just like us in, the, in, the, in that he went searching for uh, this contentment or this meaning in life in, in work, in, in accomplishments, in jobs, searching for it through money or prestige, searching for it through physical pleasure or various forms of entertainment or hobbies, searching for it through social connectivity or relationships or romance, Solomon says, listen, I, I, didn't, I left no stone unturned in this search for lasting joy and enduring peace. And the reality is I meet people all the time that are on that same search, right? And in, 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 in their, their amount or ability to pursue, they're pursuing. I mean, they're all out. They're in search for these things, leaving no, no stone unturned themselves. Solomon turns around after going on this journey at the end of his search and says, don't do it. Don't do what I did. Your search will turn up nothing until you turn to the Lord. So here at the end of Ecclesiastes, he tells us, remember your creator. This is where your focus needs to be. And then he wraps up the book with the conclusion here in verses 13 and 14. This, this final word, this profound final word, and in these two verses... There are two commands, and then there are two reasons given why we should keep the commands. Uh, now, Solomon could have said this early on. He could have said this at the very beginning and saved us a lot of time. <laughs> okay, why did you put this, this is the final, why didn't you just tell us at the very beginning? Well, the reason is because we probably wouldn't have listened. It would have been like a parent telling their children something to be careful about something or being concerned about something before they've ever experienced something. <laughs> and they're like, yeah, 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 I got that. Okay, and then they run out the door, and then something happens. And then later when you say, remember this, what I said, it, has, there's, it comes with more force and more weight. It's kind of been that way with Solomon. He could have said early on, hey, fear God and keep his commands. And we would have said, yeah, I've heard that. Heard that, been there, done that. What, now, tell us the good stuff. <laughs> but he held out because he said, listen, all is vanity. And then he spent 12 chapters proving his point, and he's proved it. And now that he's given us all these examples of how we, we follow in, in many ways in his footsteps in this pursuit for contentment and satisfaction, we're all guilty at this point, right? We're all sitting there saying, okay, Solomon, I get it. You're not some this guy out here that experienced all these things that we can't identify with. In fact, there's been so much of what Solomon has said that we've been agreeing with in our own hearts and just saying, yeah, I've, I've been there. I've gone after that. I've pursued that. I have felt that feeling of frustration. I've felt that feeling of where's the, where's the justice. I felt that feeling of why didn't this give, why didn't this make me feel a certain way when I finally acquired it and I finally got to that point. It was sort of anticlimactic. I thought if I could just get to that level that it would be this great feeling and then I got there and realized that that too is also a vapor. It's just, it's just a fleeting thing. So he's got us now, if you will. It's like he's got our attention at this point 
And he now gives us these, these final words, this conclusion, and the two commands that he gives to us are, verse 13, the conclusion when all has been heard is fear God and keep his commandments. Literally in the Hebrew, it's God fear and, command, and his commandments keep. So the emphasis in the Hebrew is on God and his commandments. So it's they're sort of in that place of that place of emphasis in the in the statement, uh, which are two very common imperatives in the Old Testament. So this issue of fearing the Lord and observing or keeping—it's the sense of watching over. So it's sort of this—it's not just know His commandments; it's it's hover over His commandments. It's it's like get familiar with His commandments, know them intimately, and and then bring your life in keeping with these things. Ta-da! That happened last week. Love the timing too. So let's look at them. Uh, let's look at these in detail. Number one, imperative number one: fear God. Fear God, which is the fifth time in Ecclesiastes Solomon has mentioned the fear of God. We've we've along the way we've talked about this. We saw it in chapter three, chapter five, chapter eight. Uh, in chapter eight twice. So what is it? Well, we, we've tried to describe what it is, and we've done this, on, again, on other occasions, is trying to get a better understanding of what the, what the fear of God is. Um, it, we, I think we've made it clear up to this point that it's not, being, it's not being terrified of God like God is a monster out of a scary movie, right? It's, that's, that's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about a slavish fear, uh, God isn't determined to destroy everything good about your life, okay? But some people have that mentality of God, that God is the, the, the cosmic killjoy, right? And yet we've seen, even in this very book, all these exhortations to enjoy God's good gifts, right? God is not out to destroy good. God is out to give you what's best. We just don't always see it that way. So it's not this slavish fear. Zach Eswine says this, quote, God is not like a criminal whom we must blackmail in order to keep ourselves and our families safe from harm. God is not, not spook in the night. He is not an abusive husband around whom we and the children must walk on eggshells or else. And yet those are sometimes the way that we view God, right? That God is someone that we're walking on eggshells around, that God is someone that we have to sort of manipulate to, to be good to us but not at all, right? So it's, it's not being horrified of God. It's not, it's not serving God or, 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 or doing things for God out of servile fear. It's, it's much more than fearing to break God's laws. It is, it is, there is an element of being fearful about breaking God's commands, but it certainly goes beyond that. Uh, to fear God, and we'll just take some of the things that we've looked at in this book, to fear God is to recognize that He is our Creator. I mean, that's a good starting point, Right? is to just acknowledge that your life comes from Him, right? That He is the one who created you. I mean, that right there, unfortunately, folks, that's, that is a dividing line. I mean, there's only two groups of people, right, on this planet. There are those who acknowledge God as their creator, and there are those who exchange, what does Romans say, the glory of God for the glory of the creature, right? They don't give God, they don't give God any credit at all for being the creator, so it begins there. The fear of God is, is, is a recognition that God is our creator. To fear God is also to, to recognize that he created us with dignity. 
Uh, back in chapter 7, verse 29, he said, Behold, I have found only this, that God made men upright, but they have sought out many devices. So he gives us a, a, a sort of a, a kind of a general statement there, but it's, again, it's, in a, it's, it's a reference back to, to the Genesis account that when God made man, he made him upright. Uh, he made man without sin. And yet men sought out many devices, Right? So God created us with dignity. It also implies that to fear God is to admit our sin, <laughs> right? So rather than blaming God for the things that are going on, we need to understand that we have culpability here, we need to admit our sin. In fact, Proverbs 8.13 tells us the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. So it's not just a, an admission of sin. It is a, a turning from sin, right? It's a hatred of sin. In fact, this is one of the things we tell people that are struggling with, am I a Christian, am I not a Christian? You know, they're, they're wrestling with their own relationship with God, and this is one of those basic fundamental questions. Do you hate sin? <laughs> not do you hate the consequences of sin or the effects of sin in your life, or do you hate it when people sin against you? Because unbelievers would say, I hate it when people sin against me, right? And I hate the fact that my body is, I'm getting older and I'm falling apart, okay? It's do you hate sin, do you not only acknowledge sin, but do you turn from it? That's, that's, that's key. Uh, if a person's a believer, that would be at the very core of, their, of their, their heart desire, would be to love the Lord and to turn from uh, the very thing that, that, uh, for which Christ died, right? So to fear, to fear God is to turn from our sin. To fear God is to recognize that our days and deeds are in the Lord's hands. So it's, again, a recognition not just of God's, the fact that He's the Creator, but He's also our sovereign Lord. So he is the controller, right? He's the one in charge. Uh, he is the one that, that controls our days, our seasons, every activity. To fear God is to recognize that all of this life under the sun has its end in him. So it's a turning to the Lord alone for wisdom. It's a, tor- a turning to the Lord alone for, for purpose and for explanations. To, 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 to fear the Lord is to live in complete, you might say complete devotion to God or even to take God seriously. To fear the Lord is to take God seriously and to pay attention to His words. The shepherd's words. Remember, these come from our shepherd, Solomon says. So we pay attention to those words because His words and His commands shed light on everything in creation and everything in providence and everything that we experience. Uh, Ray Steadman provides this acrostic to sort of help us remember. So he takes the term fear, and uh, he just just to sort of as an explanation of the fear of fear of fearing God or the fear of the Lord. He says F stands for faith, faith in God's existence. Again, that's just the, at a very basic level. E stands for experience, in, in the sense of experiencing God's grace. So it's speaking about our need to experience the wonder of God's forgiveness of being forgiven and then sent out with a new purpose in life. A stands for awe at the majesty and the wisdom and the power of God. And then R stands for resolve, a resolve to obey Him. That is the fear of the Lord. Faith, experience, awe, and resolve. Which brings us to the second imperative in verse 13, which is to keep His commandments, to keep His commandments. Now, when, when, when Solomon gives that counsel that we are to, to, to fear the Lord and we are to, to uh, keep his commandments, it had to, I think in Solomon's mind, he, it had to cause him to recall with great regret 
that this had been the burden of his own commission from God when he became king. God had told Solomon, and we looked at this months ago. We went to 1 Kings and looked at some of these uh, references regarding Solomon's uh, reign and his, his, his um, appointment to the throne in Israel and his career as a king uh, in Israel. But God had told him in 1 Kings chapter 3, verse, verse 11, uh, God says to him there, Because you have asked this thing and have not asked for yourself long life. So Solomon asked for wisdom, right, to be able to rule the people. He says, Because you've asked for this thing and not asked for yourself long life, nor have asked for riches for yourself, nor have you asked for the life of your enemies, but have asked for your dis- yourself discernment to understand justice, Behold, I have done according to your words. Behold, I have given you a wise and discerning heart, so that there has been no one like you before you, nor shall one like you arise after you. I have also given you what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that there will not be any among the kings like you all your days. If you walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and commandments. So it's the same phrase of keeping commandments. He says, if you walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and commandments as your father David walked, then I will prolong your days. So this was a condition. The Lord says, I'm going to give you these things, but here's here's the deal. If you're going to have prolonged life and prolonged days, you have to keep my commandments. Now, what we find out is that Solomon failed, right? He failed. You could go on, 1 Kings chapter 11 Uh, Verse 4, it says, When Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away after other gods, and his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God, as the heart of David David his father had been. Talks about how uh, Solomon went after these these false gods. Verse 6 says that he did evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not follow the Lord fully. Uh, Verse 7, Solomon built a high place for one of the idols. Um... And for uh, uh, actually two different idols. Then verse 8 says, Thus also he did for all his foreign wives who burned incense and sacrificed to their gods. Now the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart was turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice and had not commanded and, and had commanded him concerning this thing that he should not go after other gods, but he did not observe or he did not keep what the Lord had commanded. So the Lord said, verse 11, to Solomon, because you have done this and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes, which I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and will give it to your servant. So you might call this a partial apostasy that took place in Solomon's life. Uh, a partial apostasy that happened in his life when he was, he was older. But by the time he writes Ecclesiastes... And again, I shared this when we started this study. My, my opinion of this is that Solomon sought forgiveness. He sought restoration for his sins. And at the end of his life, he tells his sons, he tells his students, he tells really anyone that is willing to listen to his message, fear God and keep his commandments. And at this point, it's like the, the authority that's behind that when you've had a life where you asked for the right thing, God gave you that thing, and then he gave you all of these other gifts from his good hand, and then over time you violated the very things that God commanded you to do, 
you reaped the consequences of doing those things and making those decisions. Now we have at the end, it's sort of that Solomon came to that Psalm 130 moment, that out of the depths I have cried to you, (laughs) not as an unbeliever, but as a believer. Up to here in sin, as a believer, I think Solomon repented, was restored to the Lord, and Ecclesiastes is his letter of repentance, if you will. It's, it's him looking back over that as a child of God and just saying, this was my experience, and, and I want to save you the heartache, folks. I want to save you the trouble. Learn from me. And if I had to summarize it, it's fear the Lord, keep His commands. Because if Solomon would have done that, he would not have experienced those things. If he would have been fully devoted, right? Because that's to fear the Lord is full devotion. That's the very thing that God said, you didn't do that. You did not, were not fully devoted to me and you did not keep my commandments. Those very things were the things that Solomon did in his life that led him to this place. So he, he gives us this, this message. Fear God, keep his commandments. Take God seriously and do what God says. And these always go together, Right? Um, I mean, it's not just a matter of doing His commandments. It's fearing God. It's worshiping God. And if you're truly devoted to God, that always translates to what? Obedience, right? That's even more explicit. I mean, you can see that all through the Old Testament. It's even more explicit in the New Testament with passages like 1 John 2. By this we know that, that we have come to know Him if we keep His commandments. Right? The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. So saying These things have always gone together. Uh, Michael Eaton says it this way, conduct derives from worship. So you're always worshiping something or someone. Right? You are all, every waking minute of your day, you're worshiping. Okay? That's who you were designed and created to be. You are a worshiper by definition. But then whatever it is you're worshiping, or whoever it is you're worshiping, that then leads to conduct, right? I mean, the choices and the decisions that you make in life reflect the thing or the person that you're worshiping. Uh, it reminds me of the prophet Isaiah, right? It's interesting because when Isaiah is confronted with the, the power and the majesty and the glory of God, initially he says, Woe is, woe is me, for I am ruined, Right? But then the Lord immediately follows that up with who, 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 do I, who, can, who would go as a messenger? <laughs> what does Isaiah say? Here I am, right? Send me. So it's this, it's this pairing of being struck with the character of God, right? Being humbled by the character of God, the power and the glory of God, but then immediately wanting to obey the Lord. And so he immediately turns around. Isaiah says, says here am I send me, which makes complete sense, right? Because when we've been confronted with or when we've been floored by the majesty and glory and power of God, disobedience becomes unthinkable. To do anything other than obey at that point, just it's unimaginable to us. So Solomon says, there are times when life feels futile and empty with the endless cycles of repetition, but just keep obeying God. There's going to be times when you're tempted to search for satisfaction in pleasure or worldly pursuits. Put God at the center. Fear the Lord. 
There will be times when you don't understand why things are happening the way that they are. That's okay. Keep trusting him. Keep doing what God has commanded you to do. Or as I often tell people when I'm counseling, do the next right thing in your life. Just do the next right thing. So based on where you are, based on who you are and your God-given responsibilities, obey the Lord, and sometimes that's overwhelming for people. Just keep His commandments, right? Which one? And I just say, what's the next one? That's it. What's the next right thing you need to be doing in your life? And do that. And then once that one's done, then what's the next one, right? Just piece by piece. So once, once Solomon describes for us what life is like under the curse... Uh, He then gives us the answer to the question of how we navigate this life full of frustration, futility, and mystery. And the answer is an obedient fear of the Lord kind of faith. When your life feels empty, when you don't know what in the world God is doing in the midst of life's confusion and turbulence, when death is beckoning, this is the safest, most secure place to be, fearing the Lord and obeying Him. A steady, studied preoccupation with God, and a spirit-enabled obedience to His Word, which is no surprise, right? This is, this is the harbor that Solomon has been heading to the entire time. Chapter 2, verse 25, For who can eat and who can have enjoyment without Him, without God? Chapter 3, verse 11, He has made everything appropriate in its time. He has also set eternity in their heart, yet so that man will not find out the work which God has done from the beginning even to the end. Chapter 5, verse 7, For in many dreams and in many words there is emptiness. Rather, fear God. Chapter 8, verse 12, Although a sinner does evil a hundred times and may lengthen his life, still I know that it will be well for those who fear God, who fear Him openly. Chapter 12, verse 1, Remember also your Creator in the days of your youth. This is where Solomon has been going all along. The conclusion, the final word, Once you understand that you live in a sin-cursed world and you are disillusioned with that world enough to run to the Lord and to cling to Him in our age through trusting in Jesus Christ, the final word is fear God and keep His commandments. When you face an incomprehensible world with far too much pain, there is only one thing that will keep you from losing your mind, the joyful strength of of the fear of the Lord, and the proof of your fear of the Lord is obedience. Obedience. Now, there are two reasons Solomon gives for these two commands. Reason number one is at the end of verse 13 when he says, because the New American Standard says, because this applies to every person. Uh, you, You may have ESV translation which says, for this is the whole duty of man, although the word duty is not in the, the, the Hebrew text. How many of you have a New King James? Anybody have a New King James version? Okay, this is probably the best for this, this last portion of verse 13, probably the best translation. The New King James says this, Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is man's all. This is man's all. That is to say, this is what it is all about. This is what ties all of life together. The all of man is not one more rung of success. It's not one more dollar. It's not one more moment of pleasure. The all of man is God. 
Romans 11.36, For from him and through him and to him are all things. Right? To him be the glory. So it's simple, really. Devoted service and obedience to him is your all. It's the thing that explains everything. It's what you were made for. And so Solomon just says, stop fighting it. This is it. This is the whole, some translations say the whole of man, the all of man. This is what encapsulates everything that we experience under the sun. Devotion to God, submission to the truth, obedience to his word. So the final word and reason number one is God is your all. God is your all. And then reason number two, verse 14, he says, For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. So he says this in the previous verse, every person. So it's every person, no no one is exempt. It's every act, even those things that are concealed from others. Uh, Nothing can be hid from, from God's eyes. So the Lord knows the motives of our hearts. He sees if there's any hypocrisy. He sees the hypocrisy. Uh, everything will be brought out in, into the open at last. One day God will expose not only every secret sin, but will uncover every anonymous act of kindness. So it's not just the evil, it's the good, right? So there's a lot of good, right? There's a lot of obedience and devotion going on that we don't see, right? But God, God sees those things. So it's every careful and every pure thought, but it's every casual and every selfish thought. It's every edifying and every truthful word, but it's also every careless and every false word. And that is why everything matters. Because we said this months ago, the tendency when you go through Ecclesiastes is to just say, well, then what's the point? But actually, the conclusion ought to be everything matters. Not, well, then what does it matter? It's that everything matters. (laughs) If God is the one in charge and he's the creator and he's going to hold everyone accountable, then every detail matters. Everything matters because there is a God who will judge the world and everything in the universe is subject to that final verdict of a righteous God who knows every secret. So he says, God will bring every act to judgment, everything hidden, whether it's good or evil. Now, where does your mind go when you read that? When you think about that statement, God will bring every act to judgment. Does anything pop in your mind? A passage of Scripture? Any other, anything else you know of, te- teaching of Scripture that deals with that concept? Anything come to mind? Matthew 12, every idle word. Matthew 12, 36. Romans, what's that? Romans 2. Romans 2, what's that? <laughs> what's the what's the concept though you're uh, talking about? Every, every men, uh, God judges the secrets of men's heart. Okay. All right. Anything else come to mind? Believers, where are believers going to be? Are believers going to have to give an account? Yeah. All right. Where is that? The bema seat. All right. Where's that at in Scripture? It's in First Corinthians. Where else is it at? You counselors out there. Second Corinthians five, nine and ten. Yes, it's one of the verses we use a lot in counseling. We forgot about, there's also another judgment, which is the, all right, where the Revelation 20, right? So when I read that passage, that's kind of where mine, mine goes, right? It's going to Corinthians, it's going to, to, to Revelation, it's going to passages like Matthew 12. Um, now, that was not on Solomon's mind. You know that, right? Because 
<laughs> it hadn't been written yet. Okay, those things were written a thousand years after Solomon. So we have to be careful here. Right? When you start to think, okay, what, what, is, what was Solomon thinking about when he made that statement? Because we have to, we call this progressive revelation, right? Which is that God revealing himself over time. And when you study, this is just uh, important for when you study a book of the Bible, you have to ask that question, what had been written up to that point? So that we don't backfill in information that the that writer did not have at the time. And so every text that we just mentioned had not been written yet. Okay, which just means that we, we know more than he knew, right, about this in more detail. So we have to be careful about sort of, in sort of taking that information and assuming that Solomon had that information about this God's final after after death judgment. So, so the question is, did Solomon understand these things? Because it seems he seems to be frustrated at times that people don't always get what they deserve. In fact, he mentions this back in chapter eight, verse fourteen. He says, "There's a futility which is done on the earth." That is, there are righteous men to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. On the other hand, there are evil men to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I say that this too is futility. So you sense a sort of frustration. He's like, okay, but people aren't getting, the, the good people are suffering and the bad people are not getting the justice they deserve. And, and that's futile. That's frustrating to me. And yet we have statements earlier in the book where he says this, for instance, in Ecclesiastes 3.16, Furthermore, I have seen under the sun that in the place of justice there's wickedness, and in the place of righteousness there's wickedness. I said to myself, God will judge both the righteous man and the wicked man for a time for every matter and for every deed is there. So which is it? Where does it say in the Old Testament that God will judge all men after they die? Okay, the imprecatory psalms. All right, what else? Anything, anything else come to mind? And I'll let you off the hook. There's not a ton there, okay? What's that? Let's say it again, Jeff. Psalm 917. Okay. Okay, all right. 5811, mankind will say, surely there is a reward for the righteous, surely there is a God who judges the earth. Okay, all right. So, here's what I think. We struggle when we when I ask that question. Where where where, in the, where does it say this? I mean, if you only look at the things that have been written up to the day of Solomon, where does it talk about this final judgment? I, 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 there's not a lot explicitly there. In other words, there's some implicit things, and there's some statements like this. Uh, many of them refer to the grave, not necessarily to this final day. Something like we'd consider the great white throne judgment. So, but here's here's what I think is going on. I think Solomon wants you to struggle. I think that Solomon wants you to think about what he has said in this book alone and to sort of put it together and figure it out. But they have already offerings to, for atonement. Yes. And so they know that there are people who don't do their offerings. There are secret sins. Yes. So they know there's consequences, right? For At least temporal. And that's what I'm saying. It's, it's, it's really the amount, the level of detail about what's, this day of accounting and what's going to happen. Are these people just going to disappear? So these, these issues of, of, e, of eternal life, e, eternal condemnation, some of that 
it's, it's not as explicit for sure as much as it is in the New Testament. But here's the thing. I, I think it's there. I'm not saying it's not there. I think what Solomon does, and if you just take his book alone, I think what he does is he takes what he knows to be true about God and about God being just and righteous And then I think he takes all the things that he knows to be true about life, the fact that the wicked do sometimes prosper and they do get away with things. And I think he just puts the two together. So he doesn't have all the details that we have, but I think that Solomon knew there had to be something more. He, he knew that there was, there was life after death. I mean, you remember Enoch, right, back in Genesis, and God took him. Well, he went somewhere. <laughs> right? So, I mean, there's these statements about certain things in the Old Testament. Enoch had to go somewhere, and, and Solomon concluded that there must be a time when God would apply his perfect justice. In other words, he knew that God would not overlook those things, right? There, there would be a day of judgment, and he concluded there has to be a time when all of the frustration and all of the vanity and all the injustice and all the evil and the madness will be resolved. There has to be. Didn't he do that with the flood of Noah? I mean, I mean, he can look back at that and say, "Hey." Yes, and that's what I'm saying. If, if nothing else, he's, if those are. But I would say there's those are temporal things. In other words, he, you're only seeing what's happening on this earth. I think it's a question of what's going to go, what's going to go on down the road. So that, yeah, again, I'm not saying there's not evidences of these things, but I think he's just putting to fa the fact together that the world has been bent. And God is righteous and, and he's just. So he's just putting two of those concepts together and saying, therefore, there has to be a resolution. These things have to be resolved. And the fact that there is a future judgment underscores the reality that those things that we, that, that we do experience in this life under the sun are wrong. That is to say, we are supposed to be frustrated. Things, th these things exist because of the fall. They exist because of our ridiculous and foolish sinful decisions. That is why verse 14 is the resolution of the book. Something is wrong and God will make it right. So judgment means that God is going to make things right. What is wrong about me that frustrates me? What is wrong about you that frustrates you? What is wrong about me that frustrates you? Right? We can't fix it all. We can't straighten what is bent. In fact, C.S. Lewis said this, There have been times when I think we do not desire heaven, but more often I find myself wondering whether in our heart of hearts we have desired anything else. We are waiting for God to fix it. So that is why you can never fully be, totally be satisfied. That is why you can never be everlastingly content or permanently fulfilled under the sun. Because what you and I want is heaven, right? Even unbelievers long for the fix. They just look for it in the wrong place. They, they experience the same frustrations that we do, right? They see the vanity. They experience the futility. They're just not looking to the Lord for, for, for solutions, So Solomon's search is your search. It ends when God becomes your all. It ends when you realize that Christ came to give life, not the kind of life described in Ecclesiastes, right? Not, not a vain, futile, meaningless life, but abundant life. 
He came to give us perfect and eternal life by satisfying our souls. So the time has come for us to draw our conclusions. Despite the vanity of our earthly existence, our lives retain a God-saturated purpose. Our purpose to glorify God by believing and following Him. To glorify God by enjoying Him now and forever. Or to put it simply, God is our purpose. He is our Lord and our satisfaction. That is why in Psalm 23 it says, He is our shepherd, right? He is our Lord. He is our shepherd. He is the want provider, the rest giver, the pasture and path leader, the soul restorer, the valley walker, the with me overcomer, the comforter, the table preparer, the head anointer, the cup filler, the goodness and the mercy sender, the house dweller, and the forever secure. That whole psalm basically says, Every possible thing you need, there is no lack when the Lord is your shepherd. You don't lack anything, and everything that you need is in Him. (laughs) Your purpose is in Him. He is your all. So remember God the Creator. Fear God the Creator. Keep His commandments. Enjoy the life that God gives and prepare for leaving life under the sun, or prepare to stand before Him, or you might even say, enjoy life under the sun, but prepare for life beyond the sun. So enjoy the things that God has given to us. Just realize that these things God has given for us to enjoy, they're just gifts, right? So the, the relationships and the work and the activity and the food and the house, those are just spokes on the wheel, right? What's the hub of the wheel? Christ. Christ is the hub. Christ is not a part of your life. Christ is the center of your life. And until you get that piece right, then what you'll do is you'll end up worshiping and chasing after all of the gifts and you'll end up in a place of futility. And if you don't learn the lesson soon enough, then you'll face the Lord. You'll face the Lord in that day of judgment. So it's been a great study. I'm going to miss it. Um, but we got to move on.